All right, hey, good morning, church. If you all could start heading back to your seat, that would be great. Well, good morning, how we doing? Good? It's a big day. We got a lot going on today. We got chili cook-off after this, and then we have a, a big game today. I found out this morning that we're not actually allowed to call it uh, what it actually is, so I'm not going to say it. I'm going to try to not say it in the message, but uh, we, big, big game day. Um, but, well, good morning. My name is Casey. I'm the student pastor here uh, and, uh, at Adventure, and our elders and Brad, they just got back from a retreat this weekend, and so they asked me to wrap up this series today. But don't worry, I'm not going to throw any bricks this time. Uh, at least I'll try. Um, but uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will keep rolling. Uh, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this, uh, this space that we have to come together uh, and to worship you. I pray uh, over this, the rest of this service that uh, as we hear and unpack your word and unpack these disciplines, uh, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and, and ears to hear and hearts to receive uh, this message from you. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, so we started off uh, 2024 with a conversation all about uh, the disciplines, uh, all about resolutions. Uh, so whether you pick up a New Year's resolution every single year or if you kind of just think that they're dumb, I'm sure that we can all agree that in some way, uh, at the very least, they sound good. Uh, I, I mean, to some extent, I'm sure that we all have a desire uh, for change in our lives in some way. Uh, like we want to be more X. We want to be more organized, or we want to be more fit, or loving, or wealthy. Whatever it is, that sounds good. But when we, when we see the road that it takes uh, to get there, what often happens is we either give up before we even start, or we take a few steps down the path and we fall. But if we're lucky, if we are a part of the 15 to 20% of people who stick to it, we come out on the other end. And now those odds aren't great. Uh, that means that resolutions have an 80 to 85% chance of failure. And so I think that for many of us, that disappointment has fueled doubts in our minds uh, about change. Uh, less and less people that I know of are actually participating in New Year's resolutions. And every, every person that I've talked to about this, they say they don't work. So what's the point? And I think that that doubt has actually spread beyond just New Year's resolutions, uh, but the failure of people's attempts at change has made us doubt that change is even possible. And I think that many of us are too used to people saying, I'll try to be different, or I will try uh, to be better, and then nothing changes. And so then we start to think that the reality is, is people don't change. But church, that's not true. Maybe the problem isn't that we can't change, but as Brad pointed out a few weeks ago, maybe our problem is our method to change. See, just saying that I'm going to try really has no power. Trying is just a one-off attempt that is solely dependent on how much strength we have in that moment. And so if we depend on trying to change our lives, we're not going to get that far. So what's the alternative to trying? Well, in the spirit of the season, how do you think a guy like Patrick Mahomes was able to get an arm that could throw a football that won him two, soon to be three, big game rings? He didn't always have that, right? Like, he didn't get there by just trying, as all professionals do. 
Uh, he adopted practices and habits to build up strength and coordination and the mindset to not just throw some footballs, but to become the kind of person needed to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. Because training, disciplines, like the practices that we adopt, they create who we are. And whether you see it or not, it's already working in your life. Everyone is already doing some sort of practices uh, that leave us transformed by the power of something else. John Mark Comer put it this way, your life is already organized around something. It may be your career, it may be health and wellness and physical fitness, arts, pleasure, food, addiction, family, and he goes on to ask, is this giving you life? Are the things that you orient your life around forming you to become the person that you most deeply desire to be? Now, I don't think that we are trying to get to the NFL. Uh, I think that our longing for change is, is really deeper than that. Like, we want to be good husbands. We want to be good wives. We want to be good fathers and good mothers and good students, good bosses, good neighbors, good disciples. And the only professional at living a life like that was Jesus. Jesus understood what it meant to have peace. Jesus understood what it meant to have patience and love and strength and all of these things that we long for. And if we look at Jesus' life, he himself had a set of disciplines that he practiced that enabled him to live the kind of life that he lived and to do the kind of things that he did. And those disciplines gave him power. Disciplines like prayer, obedience to God, being word-centered, exaltation, which is a fancy word for worship, and relational intentionality. Now, Jesus in his ministry, he spent years teaching his followers these same disciplines so that they could live powerful lives just like him, and so that they could live transformed lives. And if you want to see what Jesus' transformational power actually looks like in a person, look at Peter. Look at a man who was prideful and impulsive and fearful. Look at, look at Paul, a man who was vicious and cruel. Look at all of the messy people that Jesus called to be his followers and see how their lives were transformed by the power of living life in a manner of Jesus. And so we've been walking through uh, just some of those disciplines and learning about how we can approach these practices in the way that Jesus did. Now, notice I didn't say to, to, to I didn't try to point out what behavior to modify, but the goal is for us to truly view these lifestyle habits in the way that Jesus did. But we can't be people that just talk about it. Dallas Willard said in his book on the disciplines that to reject, meaning to not do the disciplines, is to insist that growth in the spirit, meaning transformation, just happens all by itself. Meaning that we have a role to play in our transformation. And so every week, Brad uh, has challenged us as we have walked through the disciplines, he has challenged us with practical ways to orient our lives differently. And church, I just want to say that it has been really awesome to, to be in staff meetings and to be in conversations with some of you and hear about how these weekly challenges have been impacting you and changing your lives in just a few short weeks. And honestly, I look forward to, to hearing about and seeing how maybe just a year or maybe, maybe two years, or maybe even a lifestyle uh, of living devoted to these disciplines, I, I look forward to hearing and seeing what that could do within you. 
And so this week we wrap up uh, that se- the series uh, by looking at this last discipline, relational intentionality. Those are two very powerful words. Relational is all about our connection to one another. Our relationship is the quality of that connection, and that is how we define it. Your relation to someone is all about how you are connected to that person. And so, relational is essentially the tie between you and another person. Now, intentional, that means to be active, uh, to not be passive. It means to be purposeful and deliberate. And so when it comes to applying intentionality to our relationships, we can land on relational intentionality, meaning to actively pursue our connection with others, to actively pursue that connection. Now, something else uh, to notice is this discipline is kind of the first discipline where the focus stops being on the individual, like contained between just us and God, and it shifts towards inviting a third party, someone else, where the practice isn't so much focused on so much inward, but outward. And with that comes a little bit of a change of how we are to approach this discipline. See, relational intentionality is in part the culmination of all the other disciplines before it. As we train ourselves to pray like Jesus and to be obedient like Jesus and to center our lives on the word like Jesus and to worship like Jesus, being intentional with our relationships, that outward expression will flow naturally. Dallas Willard calls this an unconscious readiness, implying that as we practice living the way that Jesus did, we enter into a state of being ready to live and to love the way that Jesus did. In other words, our preliminary disciplines fuel our active pursuit of those around us. Now, Jesus, he was on to something when using analogies involving plants. So let's say that I have a plant, and the disciplines are watering this plant. It is tending to the soil. It is pruning all the dead branches, all of which create an environment for the fruit to grow naturally. Now, if we want the fruit of loving people like Jesus to be present in our lives, we have to put in the work to let it grow within us. But here's the important part. The part that I think that we sometimes ignore or we forget is that even when it grows, we have a responsibility to take care of the fruit. Think, what kills the fruit on the plant? Maybe me. Like maybe I come along and I smack it off the plant and I stomp on it. Or maybe I ignore the fruit and I leave it there and I let it waste away. Or maybe I let the bugs and the animals come and destroy it. Just because the fruit is there, that doesn't mean that the process is over. But all that sounds silly, right? Uh, Like, of course you're not going to just leave the fruit on the plant. Of course you're not going to stomp on it. It's almost common sense that when the fruit is ready, you take it. So then why don't we have that same attitude towards the fruit of our disciplines? Think with me for a moment. What kills relational intentionality? Well, Jesus himself lays it out uh, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. See, Jesus was always kind of reconfiguring our ideas of how to live. 
in our world. And in these chapters, he clarifies the misunderstandings about how we live, and he introduces us us to new ways of thinking, and he nails the essentials of what drives the space between us and those around us. And in this sermon, he talks about things like anger, contempt, lust, manipulation, payback, passivity, all of these things, they damage the connection between us and another person. So stomping on the fruit of the plant sounds silly, yet how many times have we stomped out our relationship with others? Where we let our anger get the best of us and we yell at our kids. Or we, or we let our lust for someone else damage our, our marriage, our relationship. Or we hold bitterness and contempt in our hearts because someone else got what we deserved. Ignoring the fruit sounds irresponsible, but how many times have we ignored our friendships and let them waste away? How many times have we remained passive and let the opportunities to meet someone new or to let them feel cared for pass away because we were either afraid or we just didn't care? These are silent killers to our relationships. But let's think a little bit more about the world uh, that we are living in now. Next month, we hit the four-year anniversary of our world shutting down due to something called COVID-19. Now, some of us, we hear that word and we tense up a little bit because that was absolutely not a good time. (laughs) Now, let's call uh, call that situation for what it actually was. For me, it started out as a two-week-long spring break, and that was awesome. Uh, But the fun rhythms very quickly became ruts. And that excitement of all this time to play video games and all this time to to spend with my family quickly came at the cost of isolation, where the relational ties became sick. Birthday parties turned into drive-by waves. Weddings were cut down to gatherings under 10 people. Graduation ceremonies were held behind a screen. Practically every single connection that we had with anyone else outside of our family unit was severed, cut off, functionally dead. And now here we are, years later, still carrying the scars of that isolation, trying to bring our communities back together, trying to bring dead things back to life. And as a little girl said in in Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, anything dead coming back to life hurts. We face so many things in our lives that kill our ability uh, to actively pursue one another. But church, the focal point of our faith is a belief in someone who specializes in bringing dead things back to life. We believe in a God who breathes life into communities, who after creating us, took one look at us and said, it is not good for you to be alone. So in the life of Jesus, we see how to participate in the restoration and the flourishing of our relationships. And at the center of Jesus' practice of relational intentionality, we see love. Jesus' love for those around him, it changed lives. It healed impossible ailments. It softened the hardest hearts. It changed people's lives. And Jesus' love was radically transformational, and it fueled his entire movement. 
Take, take the night that Jesus was arrested. and Before he would leave his followers and give them the mission of carrying on this movement, he gave them one last command. In John chapter 13, Jesus says this, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, I think that relational intentionality cannot be described any simpler. Love the way Jesus loves. That is the driving force of how we are to interact with those around us, but practically speaking, how do we do that? What can we learn from Jesus' life about what love in action actually looks like? And thankfully, we don't have to guess for that. Jesus' whole ministry, it was outward. It was so focused on other people. It was inherently relational. And in this, we can see a, a model or sort of framework of how Jesus approached every single relationship that he had, every single connection that he had with another human being. And the first thing that we see Jesus doing in loving those around him is Jesus was present. Now, Jesus never really stayed in one spot. He didn't sit back and wait for others to come to him. He came to them. You'll see all over in the Gospels, the the biographies of Jesus, these sort of transitional phrases like, as Jesus passed from there, or when they had departed, or then he came to, or as they went. You'll find all of these sayings because Jesus was always on the move coming to people. Now, let's just look at this map for a second. Don't have the map. That's okay. So <laughs> picture this. <laughs> picture this. Uh, first century Israel uh, is, is quite some distance to cover. And Jesus wandered all the way back and forth, back and forth to other countries, to other cultures, to other parts of this, uh, this hub of, of the world. He went to all of these different places so that he could come to the people. Now, I wonder how many times Jesus was tired of all of this travel. Or how many times Jesus wanted to be with just his close friends or maybe just his family or any of the other reasons that we tend to come up with for not being present with the people in our lives. Now my wife and I, we are on month two of our marriage. And already I am finding the temptation within myself to come home from work and just kind of stay home. Or on weekends to just make plans with only her. And as much as I love spending time with her, if I want to be intentional with my other relationships, I can't sit back behind closed doors. I have to be present. More than just being present, Jesus was very intentional with who he was being present with. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, it has this small little story, and it says this, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now in Jesus's culture, being a tax collector was probably one of the most dishonorable jobs that you could take. 
Uh, these were often Jews that helped Rome extort money from the entire Jewish community through unfair taxes and pressure uh, as long as they could make some money on the side. Effectively, these people were trading in the trust of their friends and of their family uh, for some money and some comfort. And it was that kind of person that Jesus went to. It was that kind of person that Jesus shared a meal with. Jesus pursued relationships in a culture that said to avoid the others. Like the people who were different The people who acted differently, the people who thought differently, the sick people, the people with problems, the people that nobody else liked, he came to them. Now here's the challenging question. Because I love you, how often do you eat with the others? The people that you are tempted to avoid. Because as we become people who are present like Jesus, our goal should be for our circle, the people that we are present with, to look more like Jesus' circle, open and inviting, and less like the Pharisees' circle, closed off. Now, building off of this framework, more than just being in the room with people, Jesus created a connection with people. Now, I want to ask, what does the best kind of relationship feel like? Now, I would say a family. Now, now to this day, I consider my best friends from high school and from college to be my brothers. Like, the connection that I have with, with them has grown to be that of what I feel for my real family, my blood family. I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that sort of situation in some way, but a temptation that I see in my life is the temptation to be pretty selective with that connection. The levels of connection, they probably go something a little bit more like this. In the middle, small circle, we have my wife. Aww. (laughs) And then, in the next circle, we have maybe my family. And then those, those college friends that I talked about. And then in the next circle, we'll say we have like my life group here at church or my, my volunteers in student ministry, or my coworkers, And then in the next circle, we have like my students in student ministry, uh, maybe some families, parents here in the church. And then outside, over here, we got everyone else. There are a lot of people in that diagram. But it's tempting to res- reserve that familial connection for just a few. Now I want to ask, what do you think Jesus' diagram would look like? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, there is this story really on in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Now, this is one of the first times that Jesus was kind of in front of a crowd of people, and this crowd of people started to follow him. And then this happens in verse 31. And his mother, Jesus' mother, and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, my brother, and my sister. See, Jesus' diagram didn't really look like this. It had two kinds of people. It had those who do the will of God, and that had those who don't do the will of God. Those 
those people that do the will of God, they are my brothers and my sisters. He takes a connection that we tend to reserve for just like a select few people, and he opens it up to the many, to all of those who do the will of God. Church, what would it look like for us to extend that connection just a little bit? Like Jesus set the bar pretty high, and if I'm going to be honest, I don't know if I'm there yet. But I can take small steps. So how can we grow that connection that we have with people in our turn and greet time during the host spot? or our coffee time before and after service, or how can we grow the connection that we have with those in our life groups, or even the people that we, have, uh, that we work with? How can we deepen our connection with others to reflect that familial connection that Jesus shared with others? And finally, after Jesus came to the people and after Jesus was present and created a connection with them, Jesus was committed to them. Now, when I say commitment, some people might get a little nervous. You know, a lot of people like to say that men have commitment issues, but church, if I am being honest, I would say to some extent, we all have commitment issues. Now, this can be something like as big as, oh, I don't want to step into a formal relationship, or it can just simply be like, I don't really want to go out on Friday night anymore with my friends. Now, psychology has shown us that there are a lot of different reasons that people have commitment issues, but in some of the different articles that I read, a trend that I noticed kind of across the board was that we don't often want to commit because we sort of anticipate some sort of failure. Like maybe the person will fail me, or maybe I will fail them, or maybe the, the experience will fail at being worthwhile. Whatever it is, failure seems to be a huge factor in driving us away from committing to things. But failure comes at a cost. Failure to commit comes at a cost. When we fail to commit, we forsake the potential of what could be. And I think that one of the best examples of commitment in Scripture is the relationship that we see between Jesus and his disciples. The disciples, a group of mostly teenagers who were messy, one of them was considered a borderline terrorist, and another one was shunned and rejected by his, his people. The list goes on. They were messy people. And church, don't think that I'm about to tell you that Jesus actually did pick well, and these guys turned out to be the perfect followers because they weren't. They messed up. They misunderstood Jesus. They reacted impulsively. They doubted. They gave up on Jesus. One even turned Jesus in to be arrested. They weren't perfect. But Jesus was able to commit to them by forgiving them of what they did and by having hope in who they could be. Take Peter, for example. You want to know who messed up the most? Peter. Do you want to know who Jesus rebuked the most? Peter. Do you want to know who Jesus directly taught the most? Peter. Do you want to know who Jesus trusted to lead the church after he left? It was Peter. And in this, we see what commitment rooted in forgiveness and hope can do to a situation. Yes, Peter messed up, but Jesus forgave, and he taught, and he was devoted to seeing this through because of the hope that he had in who Peter could become. And if we come at our individual relationships or if we come at our community with the expectation that this will go wrong and then I'm out, we will never move forward. 
we will always be a step away from what life in community could be. But if we come at our relationships and our community with the posture that this might go wrong, but we can recover, and I will forgive, and I will have hope for what it could be, imagine what could come from that. Imagine how many more fruitful relationships we would have if if instead of keeping our distance because of the discomfort from poor expectations, we took a step of faith. If we tried to find the potential in what could be rather than finding the reason to avoid it. Now this model of being present, of creating a connection and being committed, it radically changed every single relationship that Jesus had. It it set him apart from all the other teachers, all the other self-proclaimed messiahs, all the other movements. And at the end of his ministry, in the John verse that we read earlier, Jesus says to his disciples, the ones that would carry this movement forward, he says to them, do this, love like this. And then people will know that you are my disciples. Jesus is saying that this way of loving people will carry this movement forward. And so they did it. Jesus leaves and they follow in his footsteps, trying to live the life in the manner of Jesus. Praying, being obedient to God, centering on scripture, worshiping, and being intentional with their relationships. And it radically changed their lives and their community. Now don't just take my word for it. Because we have a clear description of what this kind of living did for their community in Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 42, it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This devotion to the disciplines fueled a movement that crossed cultures. It it crossed race. It crossed nationality, socioeconomic classes, and time, and it created something truly so beautiful. But is it obtainable? Yes, it is. I know that so many of us are stuck in feeling like things don't actually change, that this picture of a community is so idealistic and impractical, but it's not. I've seen it. A couple summers ago, I had the opportunity uh, to go to Israel with my, with my college. Now, we, we went all over Israel, but we also went to Bethlehem. Now, a thing about Bethlehem is Bethlehem is currently separated. About two-thirds of Bethlehem is in the West Bank in Palestine, and one-third uh, is in Israel. Now, because of the political tension uh, that has been going on for years in that area, uh, living as a Palestinian uh, in Bethlehem is really hard. Not only that, but the the Muslim faith is the, the dominant faith in Bethlehem. So much so that every street that you walk on, every building that you walk by, there are speakers all around. And five times a day, those, those speakers, they, they recite a prayer. And so when the speakers turn on and the, and the prayer starts, Uh, everyone stops what they're doing and they go onto their mats and they pray. 
Now, when we went to Bethlehem, uh, we, we, we got there on day one, uh, and that was my birthday. And, and so uh, me and my, a couple of my friends, uh, we wanted to celebrate a little bit. And so our hotel had this, like, rooftop patio and bar, and it was, it was really cool. And so we go up there, and we're the only ones there. And, and so we start talking to uh, the bartender, and his name is, his name is Danny. And he's asking what brought us here, what it is that like, we're doing, what we're studying. And, and eventually we found out that Danny is a Christian. And so we just start talking like, what's it like being a Christian in, in a place like this? Where there is all this political and all of this religious pressure. And so eventually he, he takes me out to this patio and he, and he points to this, a couple blocks away to this stretch of, of a street. And he says, right there. Most, if not all, of the Christians that live in Bethlehem live on that street. And every Sunday, they go to church together. They worship together. But after church, every Sunday, everyone goes to the coffee shop next door. And they hang out. They catch up. But more than just Sunday, they are involved in each other's lives every single day. Some of them live together. They are true neighbors. They have family meals together. They take care for one another. When people are sick, when people are poor, they help each other. And because of all of that, they are joyful. That is the kind of community that Acts 2 is talking about. This commitment to being intentional with their relationships, first off, created a community that is resilient one able to withstand the religious pressure and the political pressure, but also one that isn't able to just survive, but able to thrive, to live in abundance with one another. If pursuing relational community like that could do that in Bethlehem, imagine what it could do here. Imagine what our community could look like if this entire congregation trained to live life the way that Jesus did. Where things like anger and resentment and lust, they don't hold the power to drive us apart because we trained to love like Jesus. And as we wrap up this series and as we prepare to continue uh, in our worship of God, I want to challenge each of you. What would it look like for you to pursue the relationships around you like Jesus would? Like, who do you need to go out and be present with? What community do you need to go and be a part of? And more than just being in the room, how can you grow your connection with those in the room? And what could your pursuit of forgiveness and hope do for that community? I think in the world that we live in, it's easy to sit back and wait for things to come to us. Like to wait for that invitation to the group or to wait for someone to introduce themselves to us first. But church, I truly believe that that kind of mindset is why our communities don't look like the one that we read in Acts 2. So this is your personal invitation to every single one of you to take that next step. If you find yourself lacking in anything that we have talked about today or the last few weeks, like maybe you don't fully understand prayer or you don't know how to center yourself on scripture, or if you're thinking, I need to commit to this Christian community and I, I, you want to jump into what it is that we're trying to build here, I'd love to meet you down here to talk with you, to hear what's going on in your life, what it is that you need, and I'd love to pray for you. But if you just need some time with Jesus, maybe you are tired of carrying uh, the weight of shame, 
of guilt, of loneliness, of disappointment. He'd love to meet you down here at the cross. Love you, church. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your goodness revealed in the character and the life of Jesus. Thank you that in that life you modeled disciplines. You modeled what change really looks like, what true life, where where that true life comes from. Lord, thank you for pursuing us in the way that you did. And thank you for for pursuing us and forgiving us in the way that you have. And thank you for having hope in us. Lord, I pray for strength and courage for all of us to, to pursue those around us. Lord, I pray for guidance and wisdom in how we can navigate all of these complex relationships. And Lord, I ask that you would stir our hearts to take ownership in making the image of that early church become our reality. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.